Today, uh, we're welcoming Dr. Herr. Dr. Herr is back uh, today, uh, editorializing a bit per my request. Um, Very uh, <laughs> Given his, his uh, history of running the, the surgical ICU at Washington Hospital Center for a number of years, um, coming here to take over the cardiosurgical ICU and seeing what he's done with that um, and has uh, is, is been wonderful. And uh, it's been so much to learn on my part and on the parts of uh, so many people with uh, less experience. Uh, you know, I thought he'd be a perfect person to talk to us today. He also is behind about every little policy regarding critical <laughs> care in, in this hospital. So um, you could apply this to That's what you want to be when you, when you all grow up, right? <laughs> so, God, this is loud. Welcome. Sure I can't just talk. Um, hi, I'm Dan Herr. I guess a lot of people you know me. Um, I'm celebrating today because I'm really happy. I just heard on the news last night 60 is now the new 40. <laughs> I'm there. Um, this lecture is basically for Nathan. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so, so it's kind of a hodgepodge of things. And I just was thinking, what would I want to know about if I was a fellow? And, and some of this gets a little deep. And it, you probably won't be doing this in your first job. But I think some of this stuff is just what to watch out for, you know, how to kind of plan your day, how to, how to get through life as a critical care doc, um, because it, it ain't easy, trust me. So the first thing I thought of is, you know, what kind of job do you want to do when you grow up? I mean, we're, we're all critical care docs, but, you know, the ERIM guys, they're schizophrenic as hell. They don't know what they want to do. You know, they want to be here. They want to be there. They want to be everywhere. The anesthesia, critical care, I don't know if I want to be in the OR. Pulmonary guys, I don't want to be. So you really have to make some decisions early on about what you want to be. Obviously, I'm a, I'm a guy who was trained. I didn't do pulmonary critical care. I didn't do, you know, any, I just did pure critical care. I came out of internal medicine, went right into uh, shock trauma down here, okay, plus minus. And then I went on to, and then I went on to Sloan Kettering, but I never really did a, a separate sub-specialty. I'm, I'm an intensivist. So when I came out, it was easy. I needed to find a place that was run by intensivists. So that's the first thing you really want to know, is, is the place actually run by intensivists? You know, is it, there's so many different variations upon a theme out there. So you really have to look and see what you want to do. So first off, you, you need to know your personality. I, you know, really introspect into yourself before you go out there. Because I see guys that get into critical care, and they're just not the personality to be in critical care. Sorry. You know, you've you, you got to be able to deal with people. I mean, you have to be able to interact with people. You can't be one of these people that sit in a shell and, and just live in your room by yourself. This is a very interactive specialty. It requires, you, you know, it requires so much input from so many people, and a lot of times that input's lousy, you gotta deal with it. But you really have to figure out what kind of person you are. Because that's gonna be, depend a lot on where you go. And when you go to other places, you're really gonna have to ask these questions. And you ask yourself, well, do I fit in? Am I a follower? Am I gonna, Am I going to, do I got 20 old guys like me in front of me? Am I never going to be a leader? You know, am I, am I, and that's okay with me? Am I a thinker? Do I want to spend a lot of time developing things and not a lot of time at the bedside? You got to think about all these things and try to get them down on paper before you go out looking for a job. Um, most of you probably now, it's what, May, you probably all have jobs and you're saying, oh crap. But anyway, um, and you, you know, some people are just working bees. Some people are all these. They're usually your leader somewhere along the way because he can, he can move his hat around really fast. Um, I found this the other day. I thought it was really good advice. This is job search mistakes. 
mistakes people make. And I tell you, I think I made some of these somewhere along my way. I think when I came to the University of Maryland, I made these. I'm not, anyway, um, you know, refusal to cast a wide net. I, you guys, when you're looking at jobs, look broad and wide. Don't, don't just look at one place. Don't say, hey, I want to be right here, right now. Open up your mind, because there's a lot of opportunities out there you don't realize. You don't have to go, say you're, you're a leader, or you're a doer, or you're a worker. You might want to go to a place you know, that, that doesn't even have ICUs yet, doesn't even have an ICU system. You might be type, the type of person. The other type, you might be the type of person, I ain't getting close to this. They don't, you know, I want to go in a place that's structured, running well. I don't want to do I just want to go to the bedside every day, do my job, and go back to my office or whatever. If you have an office your first year, by the way. Um, not gravitating, not allowing, not allowing plenty of time. This is a bad time to tell you, but you guys, next year, um, you should really start planning at least a year. At least a year. Start looking a year ahead of time. I mean, Jonathan, I'm sure you got a little panicky towards the end there, right? I mean, 18 months is not unreasonable. So some of you who are going into your second year should be looking now, thinking about really what you want to do. You know, take a weekend, go visit someplace. And I can tell you, as a person who hires people, I like that. I like when a guy comes to me early and starts, and I show him around, because then I know he's trying to weigh out what he really wants. Because you're not going to commit at 18. I'm not telling you to commit. But I am telling you that you should really start looking. It's really important. Keep that in your head. Please, look around early. You know, a lot of people gravitate to large metropolitan areas. Okay, fine. You know, you're all in an academic institution. Maybe half of you want to do academics. Some of you want to do private. But please look at the smaller little towns. Um, there's some really good opportunities. I mean, there are hospitals. People get sick everywhere. And, and most hospitals are, a lot of hospitals are reasonable about mind maintaining patients in their hospital. All right? Um, there's a lot going on out there in the real world right now about triage and stuff. But, you know, if you live in a small town, you're going to get everything. And if you're an intensivist, you might really like that. You might not want, you know, 25,000 consultants coming into your unit every day and telling you what to do. Um, and again, that depends on your personality. But please don't just look at big cities. I think that's a mistake. I think there's a lot of medium-sized cities that are pretty good, like the Carolinas, for instance. Don't go to Florida. Um, not underestimating the pros and cons of employment at a hospital. You know, there's the two worlds, right? You can go from the big intensivist group or the big pulmonary group and do critical care or the big sleep group and do a little sleep and a little bit of, you know. It, again, it depends on you want, what you want. But um, please don't understand. I worked for a hospital all my life, and I, I really liked that. That was for me. I didn't like doing my own taxes. I didn't like paying, you know. I, well, I do my own taxes, but I didn't like... I, didn't, I like getting, you know, a regular W-2 every year and not worrying about all that kind of stuff. But, if, you know, if you're the kind of person that, you know, wants to do your own thing and work inside, I can tell you one thing, you will not be an individual critical care doc. There's no such thing. And if they tell you you should be in, you know, a small town with one guy, it's going to happen. So you have to join a group and be their intensivist. I think that's the best way to go. I often thought, about 10 years into this, I thought, man, it'd be fun just to work for one surgical group and do all their ICU work. Wouldn't that be cool? So maybe. I mean, that's a possibility. I mean, I know surgical groups that hire intensivists just to be their, their doc. And then you, and if you have an, you're a pulmonary guy, you can do a little bit of their pulmonary. You can do their internal medicine. So that's an, that's an option a lot of people don't think about. So you go to a small town, you see a huge surgical group. They do, in most of these small hospitals, they'll do 80% of the surgeries. You look at how, what kind of surgeries you do, and you say, boy, that's big stuff. And you say, hey, do you want an intensivist? 
if there's none in a hospital already. That's not a bad job. Not a bad job at all. You get to do uh, cost sharing and profit taking and all that good stuff. But too much faith in recruiters. I don't, anybody use recruiters? Yeah? How'd that go? Good? Yeah. So be careful, recruiters. I don't think most people use recruiters the second time around. But more importantly, recruiters come after you. And remember, the recruiters are not your friend. Believe it or not. They seem like you're your friend, and they're really good. They're almost as bad as car salesmen or house salesmen nowadays. But I can tell you, be careful of them because their interest is for the person that's paying them. Okay? So be very careful how much you bond with them. Be careful how much you believe them. Be careful what they're selling. They're, they might be selling. And I can tell you another thing. Most recruiters have no idea what an intensivist is. They think you're a pulmonary doc. Or they think you're an ER doc. So when, you, when a recruiter comes to you, kind of feel them out. See them if they really know what an intensivist is. If they don't, you're out of there. Just goodbye. Um, rushing to accept the first good offer. Yeah, don't panic. You guys are good. You, you'll get a job. You know, two months off, maybe that'd be kind of nice over the summer. Who knows if you can afford it. Um, but please, don't rush in. I mean, simple common sense. And then failing to be a tough negotiator. We're terrible. Doctors are terrible at this kind of thing. Awful. I mean, you should have seen uh, uh, Dr. Scalia and I going at it while I was trying to come here. It was, it was very interesting. You know, I'm dealing with an Italian. He's dealing with a German. You can imagine what was going on there. But I wasn't going to compromise. You know, I, it, it, you know this was going to be my job. This was probably going to be my last one. I, didn't, I negotiated. I got to admit, my first job, I wasn't very good at it at all. So the moral of the story is have some faith in yourself. You'll be amazed how much people will pay you. Um, the other thing I would say is always get a stipend to move. Always get a stipend to move, especially if you're going to your second job. That's really important. Um, failing to be, and never, never give you them a number that you will be satisfied with. They will always ask you, what once you say that number, that's where you're working from. And you're not working much more than 10 or 15 above that number any time. So really be careful. Let them give you a number. And then you say, I'll consider it. Okay? All right. Be brave. I mean, you're, you're value-added. Trust me, there's, there's a huge amount of needs for critical care jobs out there right now. So I think, I think that's, uh, oh, and then when you're talking about your contract, think about what you're going to get paid for and what you're going to do for that contract. So I'm going to get paid, obviously, everybody thinks you're going to get paid for patient care. But then we forget about getting paid for availability. You know, you go, you'll be on call or somebody gets sick in your group, or, you know, we're, doctors are amazing, you know, it's not like I call out and you, you, we just jump in for each other all the time. Paul's an expert at that. Anyway, so, so you have to think about your availability for care. You have to put that in your negotiations. Um, program management, you know, you're probably gonna wanna be involved with your job. I mean, most of us don't like being told what to do. We're independent thinkers. But you want to also be involved in your job satisfaction. A lot of people's job satisfaction includes being part of the ICU program. And you've got to ask the place you're going, what is your ICU program? And if they don't have a program, you know, start scratching, okay, because that's not right. And if you, they don't, and they do have an ICU program, they'll say, well, what does that entail? What else must I do for that program? Is there something I have to do for that program? Do I have to meet with pharmacy every week? Do I have to? Value added. You always just say it, value added. Um, educational activity, growth and development. You know, think about what you need for your growth and development. Educational activities for the 
hospital growth and development to your educational activity. So put all these things, you could you know, write these things down, do a check, checklist, and you're going through these job interviews. I think it's really important to pull all this stuff in and think about it for a while. And then, of course, all the other ad hoc activities. Hey, can you help us out? All of a sudden, now, one night you're doing a lecture because you want to help out somebody. Yeah. <laughs> Checks in the mail, right? All right, Mike. Um, and then way I, where I came from, which I thought was pretty cool, and I, I kind of think this is a good way. So you can look at this as being the boss, or you can look at it as being the, the future employee. But some places now are obviously working very much off bonus, um, and a lot of it's uh, you eat what you kill. In other words, whatever you build, that's what you get. Um, but remember all those other things I was talking about, all those value-added things? So, so what, I, what we did with my last group, and I thought it was really a lot of, and the, the group actually enjoyed it. We said we put $20,000, $30,000 at risk. And I'd say to the guys, okay, you've got to come up with at least three or four goals. So they did. And the goals had to be one for myself. Okay, I'm going to learn Excel. I'm going to learn to do something. I might be a good surfer at the end of the year. I don't know. And it could be that loose, to be honest with you. Um, one for the ICU. How are you going to fix your ICU? What are you going to do for me in the ICU this year? What are you going to show me that's new and innovative? Or what's going to make my world life better and your life better? And one for the hospital. What are you going to do for the hospital this year? You know, where are you going to save me some money? How are you going to decrease CLASB? That's kind of old hat, but you're coming up with something new now. Um, government now knows about that. And then if you want to put research in there, and I'm sure a lot of you would. So, so I put those goals out front. And at the end of the year, we would ask for the guys, say, okay, what'd you do? And if they said we did everything, fine. There's 30,000 bucks on the nail. And if I did this, and I didn't really do that, and I could decide how much I got. Um, but it really was a motivator for you guys. And 30, you know, 20, 30 grand extra at the end of the year is kind of nice to get. So that's how we kind of, and I actually, when I negotiated here, this is kind of, I didn't put a lot of money at risk, trust me. But it's something to think about. Um, new job jitters. Oh, God. So you walk into a place, right? <laughs> you got to remember, it's the same old deal again, guys. You're back to being an intern. You're back to being a first-year college student. You're back to being doing a freshman. You're back to be. It's the same crap. So remember that when you're starting out. You're not as smart as the people that are there, I guarantee you. You might be in six months, but there is a culture that you're walking into, and you are not going to change that culture. So don't even try. Don't. You will, you will get a bad rep. Somebody will get ticked off at you, and they'll, they'll mess with you for the next six months. It's just not worth it. Just remember, you are the low man on the totem pole once again. Even if you're hired as an ICU director, you're still the low man on the totem pole. There is a culture there which you don't know. As much as you interviewed, it doesn't matter. So don't try to change anything the first day. And don't keep saying, why do you do it that way? Why do you do it that way? Why do you? Don't do it, OK? Please. Um, yet you're going to be completely responsible for the patients, right? hard. Um, buck stops here. Yes, you're pretty much a nobody. Yes, you have no idea how the system really works. You really don't. Um, yes, you have, uh, you have no idea how to get things done and who cannot do them. That's really a problem. And you, yes, you feel quite overwhelmed. Give it six months. Give it six months. Um, I don't know if the next slide. Okay, so what to do? Be humble. Please be humble. Don't, don't don't say, hey, I'm from the University of Maryland. This is how we do it. 
Um, you know, if they, you see a patient who's going to die and they're doing CPR, and you'll say, wow, why don't they do ECMO? They have no idea what you're talking about, maybe, you know? Well, everybody's been trying to get ECMO for years, and now they're even more frustrated at you because you want to do ECMO, and they can't, and they're trying to satisfy you, and they can't do it. So everybody's going to, the, the system's going to fall apart really fast. So you really have to watch your words when you walk in the door. Um, introduce yourself to everyone. Don't, don't let anybody go by you without saying hi. You don't have to give them your name if you don't want to, but you really have to get to know people. Watch and listen. I mean, this is all common sense stuff, but write things down and learn the unwritten rules. You know all the unwritten rules that go on inside an ICU all the time? I can't give you a real good example, but you know what I'm talking about, right? So you gotta, gotta again, you know, the nurses have these, these things they do all the time. You just can't figure out why. Well, don't challenge them on it the first month. And actually, it might be a really good thing that you want to proselytize later. So just watch and listen. I mean, it's common sense stuff, but um, who do you need to know? Um, I'm amazed how many people in this place don't even know their, their, their nurse is in charge. Um, my fellows in the CSICU, do you guys know Mary Evans? Um, some of you don't, but you've got to know the people in charge because they're the people you gotta relate to. You cannot relate, you cannot yell at all the people in the lower levels. I'm sorry to say lower levels, but you gotta go to the managers. You gotta go to the people you gotta know. Um, if you have to know the service leaders, really important, something that's always forgotten. Who runs the pharmacy? Do you wanna yell at the tech, or do you wanna discuss it with the guy that's in charge of the tech? Don't yell at the tech. Don't yell at the guy on the phone. Hang up to them. But you have to know who is in charge of that person. You're responsible. You're now the doctor. You're now in charge. You're no longer the educator. You're no longer, I mean, the student. You're now in charge of things. You have to be responsible. And you have to work on your level. So, you know, don't, you know, remember the old monkey grinders? They used to stand in the corners and play the music. The monkey would dance. Of course not. You don't remember that. But the old saying is don't talk to the monkey when you can talk to the organ grinder. Please remember that. You know, when you guys complain to me, complain. I don't go to the person that's yelling at you on the phone. I go to their boss. I'm allowed to. You're allowed to. Okay. You'll remember these are the people you got to work with every day. All right. So know the bioengineering. Do anybody here know who the bio who's in charge of bioengineering here? Really important person to know. I remember second week in the SICU. I'm making rounds. The damn wows are falling apart. They're not working. You know. After done rounds, I pick up the phone, I call the chief of bioengineering. I say, we need wows down here. Four days later, we had five new wows. Guess how good I looked? Huh? I was the guy. So you gotta know these people. You gotta know who they are. You know, you gotta know who's in charge of the radiology techs. Don't yell at the tech. Find out what the story is. That tech might be brand new. You'd have no idea. I had tech once that got really chewed out. I'm to find out he just got here from somewhere else and didn't understand English. Duh. All right. And then know what these people are. CMO, Chief Medical Officer. CNO, Chief Nursing Officer. Oh, boy. Know your nursing hierarchy. Please get to know your nursing hierarchy. The CNO is the Chief Nursing Officer, just in case you're asking. Okay? Know uh, the chairman of the departments, although not nearly as important as the ones above. I tried to put these in order. Seriously, chairman, see ya, bye. You're only going to be in the chairman's office if you really screw up. You know how you're going to screw up? You're going to yell at somebody, and they're going to put it, write you up for yelling at them because you didn't talk to their boss first. 
then you'll be in the chairman and you'll get to know him really well. And that's no good. Okay? Um, so what is my job? I, you know, you guys laugh when I say this, but truly, a critical care intensivist, 60, easy, 60% 60 of his job's political. You guys are all smart. You know how to manage these patients. But so does the, the surgeon, and so does the pulmonary doc, and so does the nephrology consultant, so does the, everybody knows that patient. So 60% of your job is thinking about what you're going to say next and how you're going to deal with the situation. Just always think about that before you speak. This is politics. Okay, am I going to want to piss this guy off or not? Simple as that. Can I say that? And then 30%, I swear to God, 30% of it, my other job is trying to keep people from doing things to people that don't need to be done. Oh, the ID guy wants a total CAT scan. You know, what is it? Chest, abdomen, and pelvis. And you sit there and you're looking at them and say, what, who was in their pelvis? You, you really have to think about what people want. There's such a thing as Bayesian medicine. If you don't know what Bayesian is, look it up. But you really have to have a reason to do things. Good reason. These are sick patients. Going to the CAT scanner is not sometimes an easy task. I must say, they're really good at it here. But you might be in a hospital that has you know, not a very good transportation team. People die in radiology all the time. At least they used to. 5% um, teaching. teaching. Is it telling what people what to do, or is it actually teaching? <laughs> Who knows? And then sometimes you actually save a life. Um, so how will I be judged behind the scenes? You know, in other words, what are the nurses saying about that new doc? You know, what, what's the administration saying about, you know, Dan Hurd, what the hell is he doing up in that SICU? Is he ticking people off? Is he doing a good job? So um, the knowledge base of what you do, um, you have to have a good critical care knowledge base. You guys know I read, you, I, I read all the time. You know, I, I have a habit of reading two articles a night. I get every um, table of contents for every magazine that I think is important. And I try to read two articles a night. Do I read them till I fall asleep? Yeah. So do I miss the conclusion sometimes? Okay. You've got to be the expert. You cannot stop learning. Please don't stop reading. And certainly know how to judge articles. You know, because people are going to bring you crap all the time. I think we should do it this way. And it's like 20 patients, blah, blah, blah. But if you don't know what's going on in your field, then you're mistaken. All right. And the field is critical care. When you're in the ICU, it's critical care. It's not pulmonary, it's not renal. It's all of them. So you have to familiarize yourself with the big articles that are coming out in all those different fields. So JAMA, New England Journal, you better know those inside out. What was the most important article in the New England Journal yesterday? Great review on C. diff. Read it. It's really good. Really good. Staff turnover, ability to compromise. People are going to watch your ability to compromise. If you can't compromise, you're not there. 60% political. You have to be able to balance what you really want to go to the ground for, what you're really going to fight for. Staff turnover. If the staff is turning over all the time, you're screwed. It's about you. It's about the doc. I guarantee you. And they're going to start looking at that. Your temperament is really important. If you're firing off every day, yelling at somebody, you're not going to be successful. If you want to fire off at somebody, please walk them into the back room and close the door. Okay? Your honesty is really important. You know, if you screwed up, you screwed up. Don't lie. Don't make it up. Okay? If you don't know the answer to something, say, I will find out the answer, and I will get back to you. You don't have to defend everything. 
I don't know how many times things go wrong in a unit, and I just say to the surgeon, I'll look it up. And now they trust me. They trust me, I'll go back and I'll look at the flow sheet. Do not take rumor, go to objective criteria, figure it out, don't argue on the scene. You will get a bad rep quicker than not. I'm hoping I'm gonna have a good rep, by the way. Anyway, um, follow through, always follow through. If you promise somebody something, you better do it. Because that's it. If the nurse asks you, will you do it, and you say yes, then do it, okay? Never not follow up. Just like having kids. You know, if you say to a kid no, it means no. If you say to the kid yes, you better, you know, give it back. Otherwise, it'll drive you nuts the rest of your life. And you have to have the ability to change. You have to be able to, to go back and forth with the flow. Things, things happen. When I came here, I'll be perfectly honest. I came here, I did a fair amount of ECMO, but not a lot. And I was a big proner. So anytime somebody got in a respiratory death, I just proned them. And they got better. And I'll never forget the first day I was, the first week I was here, they, we proned somebody. They did well for about an hour and then turned them back over. And I remember this guy by the name of Dr. Bonatti said to me, let's try ECMO. I said, oh God, that thing's a mess. And I was from the old days when the auctioneers were bad. And, and they brought in all their stuff. And I said, wow, that's pretty cool. So look at us now. And we did 104 ECMOs last year. I was willing to make a change, but I was part of that change. And I invested myself quite a bit into it. And so it really made a difference. And now my, those people that judge you behind the scenes say, hey, look, look what they did in the CSIC with ECMO. But I was willing to change. I was willing to adopt the practice that I really wasn't really good at. All right, so team, 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 it's so important. When I came here, it was a mess. I, I swear to God, CSIC was a mess. It was always somebody else's fault. Never responsibility, everything. So the, stupid, the easiest thing I did was every day on rounds when somebody would say, they did this, and you guys still hear me say this now. They did this, they did that. I said, no, no. We're the team that takes care of the patient. If somebody did something, it's us. Because we write the orders. So they did it. No, not really. You wrote the order. Did you pass it by the team? So I kept making people say, we did this, we did that. And sometimes it didn't make a lot of sense, but hey, it started building a team idea that you know, we're all responsible, from the nutritionist to the PT person to everybody else. So it was never somebody else. You were part of the decision. You asked people to do this, and it's part of us. Um, so it's like a game. I mean, you, the only thing is the score is the patient does well. Um, it's a very tough team, by the way, <laughs> but you're the role model, hopefully. Closed units. I hate the term. I hate to tell you. I know everybody uses it. We're a closed unit. Come on, not even the medical unit is a closed unit. Nephrologists do CRT. That's not a closed unit. If it's a closed unit, you would do CRT. Sorry. You know, ID, you know, immunosuppressed transplant patients. I have ID people. I need them. I don't know in transplant ID. I got some of the best transplant IDs in the country. Why would I ever close my unit to that? So the concept of closed unit is nice, but the concept of closed unit, my mind is, you write the orders and nothing goes by you. And you're allowed to say no. That's a closed unit. It's not closed off to people's opinions. It's not closed off to people's other ways of doing things. It's just a closed unit because you write the orders. And always remember that, because I, sometimes people throw that closed unit up in front of people and it alienates them. You're in an academic center and you're going to be in all these places. You're going to have private docs that aren't going to be in a closed unit. Trust me. So you learn to work with them and you build their trust. 
And then after a while, they don't talk to you anymore because they understand what you're doing. But you've got to say, you can't just slam it in their face all the time. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about team building and leadership styles. Crap. Um, all members must, these are just different things for leadership. I think team is incredibly important. I, I look at everybody as part of my team. I look at it as a village. You know, it, it takes a whole bunch of people to figure these patients out. You've got to listen to what they have to say. They are experts. They read. You can't, you can't demean them or anything else. All members must feel respected. They have to be empowered to say what they want to say. If you notice up in the CSICU, the nurses present all the assessment now. They had to be empowered. They had, I had, no, they had no empowerment. They had surgeons literally screaming at them if they, you know, if they did something wrong. And they never had got a chance to say, but, 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 but. They had to be empowered. Everybody on the team has to be empowered to be able to talk, right or wrong. Um, you have to instill a common mission. You have to be directive. You have to be, but you also have to be empowering. So there's a difference, you know. You know, if I'm at a code, I'm going to be directive. But 90% of the other time, I'm empowering people to tell me what they think, and then I'm making decisions from that. You know, just, you know, you're sitting back and listening, and I may differ from what they do because I'm the old guy, but you still have to listen to these people. And then transformational versus transactional, I'll get into that. So safe for all members. Every member has to feel safe to talk. There's a minimal hierarchy, but not a, you know, not a king. I don't, you know, like, how many times have you said, do as I say, not as I do? Um, you, have to be, you have to take that in. You must neutralize the impact of differential professional status. Self-explanatory. You've got nutritionists. You've got PT people. You got, and I noticed what we did up in the unit, and this is something you think about, but I noticed my, my PT people weren't on rounds. My skin people weren't on rounds. My caseworkers weren't on rounds. Um, my nutritionist sometimes was on rounds. So we develop just once a week, and all the stuff that we do is physical therapy, case management, wounds, uh, what else, uh, social work, and um, the religious people. And we, we do rounds. And they all of a sudden now are empowered to make suggestions on what goes on with the patient. It's not just dispo rounds. I, I didn't like that at all. I called them captive because we do it on patients that have been there for more than five days. But I start, it's the cool thing for me is I learned an awful lot of the, the, the scut on the patients, you know, oh, their wife's married to so-and-so, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, um, but you've got to neutralize that impact of differential professionals and make them all part of the, the scene. Um, team activities, uh, we can get to that later. Transactive memory, shared understanding of each member's knowledge, role, and responsibility. So I have to know what that nutritionist is thinking. I have to know what that physical therapist is thinking. You have to get this mind-molding thing going. Think about a team that never met each other and now have to do rounds together. Versus over time, my nutritionist has been with me for three years now. You know, I've given her so much responsibility. She is now my, she's now the person that makes sure all the NGs are working. She's the person that double-checks the chart to see if the residuals are really done. Not the nurses, not the team. That's nutrition in my mind. So I've given her those responsibilities. I've empowered her to be at the bedside to tell a nurse, hey, listen, you're not doing this right. You know, you need to fix the NG tube. And that's some portion to be tied off. So, you know, you've got to learn how to empower these people and understand their responsibilities and give them more responsibility. And I can only do that after I got to know her for a while. So she became part of the team. When you get a new person, you've got to redo that again and again. Think about when you go to a coach situation, you've got 10 different people from 10 different things, and what a holocaust it can be. 
That's when you have to be directive. You can't be the, the nice guy sometimes. Well, you can be a nice guy, but you have to get it done. Um, so eventually, you can read what it says. So what you're really doing with this is building trust. You've got to have trust. People don't trust me, and I don't trust them. It's not going to work. Mutual accountability, willingness, the obligation to accept responsibilities for one actions. You know, my people now can come to me and say, hey, Dan, I screwed up. You know, this is, I just, I'm sorry. You know, because it, we've built a trust with each other. They know that I'm going to take that in the back room, and I'm going to later come out with some kind of plan or something to make it better. Um, so change. So here's a, here's a diagram from one of our great articles on how to make change. And it, it's good, you know, find the essential elements of a protocol development, identify a problem to be solved. And these, these are good, and you should have these, and you should have this checkoff list. Um, this is how I did it. How to make change. Adoption first, then reinvention, and then refinement. Remember I said you're the new guy? Find out what people are doing. Adopt it first. Try to see if it works for you. You came from a different culture. Try to get their, you're, you're living in their country. When in Rome, do as the Romans do. Learn their cultures. Find out, though. But some of these things, I guarantee you, ain't working. You know, there's so many things that weren't working when I first got here. I had this little white card on rounds. And I wouldn't say anything to anybody. I just hear, you know, well, you know, we're using sub-Q heparin in 2000 BID. I don't know. It's just, huh? You know, write that down, sub-Q heparin. You know, would you guys have, and then I'd say, do you guys have, a, like, a protocol for everybody? Does everybody get treated? No, no. Depends on the surgeon. Huh? Okay, write it down. And what I did was, I kept writing this white card, and I go back to my office every night, and I had an Excel spreadsheet. And I put down the thing I thought was broken. And I put down, on coming down the cop, coming down this way, were the people that were involved to make the change. Do I need, do I need the pharmacist? Do I need the PT person? Do I need a nurse? Do I need nobody? Do I need the surgical buy-in? And I put check marks beside them. And then I then I'd figure out at the end of the week which ones were the most important. And then what I do, I form a committee. I take those people that were really important to the process. Because there was no way you're going to change it by yourself. You have to bring the people in and own it. And then the people that don't really own it, but should own it, you've got to bring them in too. So that's why I still have my little Excel spreadsheet, and it's gotten a lot smaller over five years, but it took four or five years. I think I'm finally done with it. Now it's all new stuff. Um, so that's how, I, that's how I made change. Now obviously you have to build your the whole thing with protocol changes and stuff like that. Yeah, you've got sepsis protocols, you've got to read the literature, you've got to have some evidence, but that's when you get the meeting together. That's when you start pulling all that stuff together. But first things first, you don't try to change it the first week and don't complain. Don't complain. You know, they've been doing it for five years. Maybe they knocked off a few. They haven't killed that many patients the way they do it. Okay. Monthly conferences, the first thing, I, you know, you have to have conferences. You have to talk. Communication, communication, communication. I don't care how many meetings you have. I don't care how many people you show up. When I first got here, I used to have a um, critical care group meeting for all my docs. You know, first week, five of them showed up. Second week, two of them showed up. Third week, four of them showed up. I didn't care how many people showed up. I was always at that meeting and always had an agenda. And they begin to find out that there's decisions being made if it's just two people, because that's who showed up. And after a while, you start getting participation, because people find out you're actually being effective. And then when you make changes and you do these things, advertise them. <laughs> advertise them. Have people understand. 
because that's going to get into how does administration be. Remember, this is what people are talking behind your back. We haven't even gotten to the other powwows. First thing in here, anytime something goes wrong, and I, they told me that was a really bad name because I didn't have any marijuana in the room. But this, this is a really important concept. When you have an error on a unit of any shape or form, you have to have a sit down as fast as you can to discuss it. And you have to have the people involved. And the discussion's just that. It's a discussion. There's no blame. I can't believe how many times I added things to my white card because of these. You know, and what's really cool is, is when you have these powwows and everybody's involved, and all of a sudden you find out, geez, it takes 20 minutes to get the lab back from the code. Do you guys see what we do now? I don't know if you know, but there's actually a blue sheet on every code that you can fill out, and what it does is when the runner takes the lab down to the lab, they put it in front of the chain of labs, so you get your lab back. We haven't had a lab that's taken more than five minutes, or I'm sorry, seven minutes since we indoctrinated this. You guys might not even know the nurses are doing it. But we learned that through a couple of powwows, and we fixed it. So you, you really have to have these. That's where you're going to really learn what works. And we had powwows for good things, by the way. You can have powwows for bad things. It's a really good idea to have them for good things. So if somebody did really well in a code, you really want to you know, make that sure that everybody knows that that's what you did. Um, I'm a lean guy. You hear me saying it all the time. I don't need 15 antibiotics. You know, everybody says, why don't you use epi as a presser? Because the pharmacology of epi is first a beta agonist. And I don't want nurses learning how to titrate 10 different drips. I want them learning how to titrate four or five drips really well. So you have to learn to compromise how much stuff you're doing in your ICU. So every nurse in my ICU knows when a, when a, when a aortic, type A aortic aneurysm comes in, there's two drugs. There's Ensemolol for heart rate, and there's nitride or now it's nicardipine for blood pressure. And the nurse knows that I'm titrating the esmol for heart, and I'm titrating the nitride for blood pressure. How lean is that? Because then everybody knows what we're doing. We're not trying to titrate the esmol for blood pressure and heart rate. You know, there's two separate things. And I can look at the flow sheet, and I can right away know what's going on. So it's that type of things you got to think about as you're going through, and, you know, adjusting things. 90% um, of the people, 90% of the time. You're not going to make everybody happy all the time. You're not going to make every patient happy all the time. But if you can come up with something that works all the, most of the time, use it. Burnout. Um, question, survey of 7,800, what do you think it is? A, B, C, or D, or E, or A, B, C, D? Anybody got an idea? A, conflict with patients and families, hands? Carl's going to raise his hand for all of them. Conflict for coworkers, aren't you? <laughs> Severity of patient illness. That's what we love, isn't it? That's what we want. You know, we're kind of weird about that sometimes. And then long working hours and with too much responsibility. Eh, well, we will all work hard. We realize that. It is. It's absolutely number two. And it's kind of the theme that keeps going through here. You, you, the conflict is unbelievable. This is a board question, by the way. I pulled this right from the boards. Um, um, burnout, 72% of workers perceive conflict. 72%. So an interesting thing, I don't know if everybody knows this, but when I came here, I was losing people like crazy. I, my, uh, my MP staff, I was losing three or two or three a year. I was losing 10 to 20 nurses a year. So we finally decided that we were going to have a survey. And we sent a survey around, and it had to do with conflict, and it had to do with what physicians, how physicians interact. And uh, it came out pretty bad for the surgeons, and I can admit that. Um, and immediately, there was a lot of change because I took it to the administration. I said, an average nurse costs sixty to to $100,000 to train. 
get ready in the first year? 60 to 100,000. And I made my argument pretty quick. Things got a lot better, a lot faster. So conflict is really hitting the sources or mistrust, communication, 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 absence of regular staff meetings. Remember I was saying meet, meet, meet. If you just have a time, do it. You've got to. Um, perceived lack of leadership, um, not get into that conflicts. It's interesting, conflicts usually greater than 15 beds. If they're asking you to staff a 21 bed unit, don't do it. <laughs> Seriously, that's magic number. It's supposed to be actually it's around 12 now. Um, care of dying patients really puts a lot of stresses on you know that on everybody. Um, and then no routine unit level meeting. It, it's really important to meet. My nurses never met. I couldn't believe it. They never had nursing meetings. It was incredible. Um, I'm not going to go through. I got to keep moving. Um, disruptive behavior. You got to nail it. You just you just have to nail it. And you can't be responsible for it. You can't be. You're the intensivist. You're the leader. You're supposed to be the cool, calm, collected guy that makes patients better or fast. So if you, you find yourself getting ticked off at bedside or getting mad at somebody or, you know, do not flow blame, take it in the back room, you know, do something, but get your butt out of there. Um, it's interesting, the specialties, <laughs> one of the most conflicts, general surgery, CV surgery, cardiology, neurosurge, ortho. I've worked on all those except one. Um, where, ICU, periop. I was surprised in delivery. I was surprised delivery rooms. I thought delivery rooms were cool, quiet, calm places. I was surprised to hear about that. Um, there's a nurse's cost. Um, so when to hire and when to fire. Um, I don't know if any of you will be hiring and firing, but I kind of look at it. You know, I hire people that are definitely smarter than me. That's, that's the only way to go. And that's not hard to find. Um, you know, I, I, the person you're not, you, you definitely want to hire the people you aren't. In other words, I'm kind of a go-getter and like to work, and I'm here all the time. I need some thinkers, you know. So I hire thinkers a lot of times. I hire people who can actually write. I can't write. Um, and you want people with, you know, quiet confidence, common sense, common sense, common sense. You really want people with common sense. And the fire eye disruptors go. They go. I had a guy one time who says, I'm quitting in about, when I first got here, so I, I, I don't like this way you're doing it. I'm quitting in six months. And then in the, like a month into it, he was like, I was like, he's going to quit in three months. And he was, I every, come in in the morning, everything was kind of like, you know, people were, and here I found out this guy was, you know, kind of bad-mouthing things, and he was one of the disgruntled workers that's going to leave. I just walked up and said, goodbye. I had no idea what was going to happen. I didn't know if the nursing department would kill me or not. I said, goodbye, you're not coming back tonight. I didn't need a disruptor. I was having a hard enough time. I didn't need a disruptor. So he was leaving, he left. I got rid of a few attendings when I came here because they just, they were great, but they didn't fit the culture of the CSICU. They might have fit perfectly somewhere else, but they didn't fit my culture. I had to fire them. I didn't fire them. I just showed them that there was a better job for them. <laughs> so, how we, so that's how people judge you behind your head. Pace. You know, that's how, this is how the hospital is going to come after you. There are all the things that, you know, people are saying behind you and you've got to fix. Um, you're going to be judged by the hospital. There's data, um, JC, Joint Commission, Joint Commission, Joint Commission. I love the Joint Commission. Did you ever see the hospital so clean when the hot Joint Commission comes in? <laughs> the Joint Commission actually, all the Joint Commission actually does is make you believe and work within your rules. They don't make the rules. They, they give you not that they give you guidelines for rules, but you can make your own rule. But if you're not following your own rule, you're screwed. 
Well, doesn't that make sense? So JC is not so bad, but it's a real panic when they come around, let me tell you. Participate in it. Participate in it. If JC comes around, you go to your CMO and say, what can I do for JC? I'm telling you, I'll move you up in the ranks like that. Because otherwise, it's all nursing. It's all nursing. I have sat in on JC meetings. I've walked in because nobody invited me, and I said, I got to be here. I'm the medical director of the ICU. There's all nurses sitting in the room. What the hell? You know? And they have their rules that I don't even know. They made them up. So be part of JC. I am absolutely, anytime you, even as a fellow, as a resident, it's really a great learning experience. Trust me, you learn the hospital's rules really fast. And you learn, truly learn how bad some of them are and how you have to rewrite them once the JC leaves. Um, but JC is a good thing. I think it's got a bad rep, but I think it's a good thing. By the way, if you don't get JC, you don't get Medicare dollars. That's it. Shady Grove Hospital two years ago in Maryland. Didn't pass GC. They, almost, they went on smoke almost in three months. They fixed themselves. And JC gives you time to fix yourself. But it was tough. It was tough. Um, yeah, they'll judge you by adverse events. Patient satisfaction is a big thing. I don't know how the hell they weigh it. We did a satisfaction survey on all our patients' families. And they were all happy as could be, but one day, you know, you never know what they're going to do. You never know what they're, and the surveys are all done three months after the patient left. So if the patient's feeling healthy, good, you get a good mark. If they feel bad, you get a bad mark. I don't know how to do that, but you should probably be very aware of it inside your unit and deal with it. And I think on most of the units now are doing family meetings. The patient's there for more than five days, you have a critical care meeting. Um, if you don't, you should do that. We're doing it in our unit, trying to. Um, Public reporting, you got all this public reporting stuff. I don't know if you guys realize this, but it's really important to the hospital because a lot of this stuff now, class B's, caudies, um, for the star rating for open hearts, you know, I'm always bugging about can't have a blood sugar greater than 180 between the hours of 8, 1800 hours, I mean, 18 hours and 20, between 18 hours and 24 hours after open heart surgery, can't have a blood sugar greater than 180. If I do, it's a ding, believe it or not. And if we're a one star open heart unit, we're not going to get. Nobody, no insurance company is going to come to us and give us their patients. So this stuff, you've got to be aware of it. I think that's even the more important thing. You've got to be aware of what the hospital is looking at you for. And the only way you do that is if you get ingrained in those committees. You get yourself indoctrinated. Even as when I came here, the heart surgeons met once, once a month. And I didn't, I, where I was, the heart surgeon and intensivists met once a month together all the time. But apparently, Heart surgeons met by themselves and never included intensivists. So I, I just showed up. It's kind of interesting. Why are you here? Well, because I'm your intensivist and I run your unit and I should probably know what you guys are doing. Well, you can have 15 minutes. Okay, thanks. <laughs> it was a start. But I had to literally walk in the room and ask them. I didn't ask them, I just did it. Because that's what we got to do. You got to be a little, little gutsy sometimes, for lack of a better term. So know, know what's going on. Um, you are a service line, believe it or not. You're considered a service line. You're not a marketing line. People don't want to market critical care. We can get into that. You know, I'm not going to be able to get into that because it's going to be long gone. I didn't think this talk would take as long. But you are a service line. So you're looked at as a cost center. That's always bad. I mean, you spend money and they want to save it. Okay? So always remember, you're a cost center. Um, your goal, like I'm not going to get to all my slides, your goal is to be a market line. Your goal is to convince the hospital that if they didn't have critical care and you would not provide the services in your position, the patients would not do as well. For instance, my heart surgeons 
every time we got in trouble with the critical care group, our heart surgeons went to the administration and went to bat for us because we can't do 2,000 hearts a year without an intensivist at the bedside. That's where you want to be. You want to be so welcome, so loved, that nobody's going to walk away with you. You want to be a marketing line, not a service line. There aren't many out there. Um, we're getting there, like the LRU is a marketing line. We're marketing lung re resuscitation to outside hospitals, and it's working. That's unusual for critical care, but that's out-of-the-box thinking. That's kind of where my head is these days. How can I make myself a marketing line rather than a cost center? Um, this is funny. Dealing with the administration. This is the word I found, fixotrophy. So in fluids, will, that will liquefy when shaken, but solidify when it's left standing. So if you send an object through it real quick, it disperses and the thing stops. But if you send it too, through slow but continuously, it makes it the whole way through. That's how you got to deal with the administration. You go into the nurse's office and say, I want today, you ain't going to get it. But if you just kind of keep nibbling around the edges and keep showing them that you are the person that's going to help them make change. Remember, nursing runs hospitals. Nursing runs hospitals. Trust me. Don't forget that. So anyway, that's, if you can remember that, it's a great term. Everybody wants data. Everybody wants data. I got data. I got data. It's really hard to get data. Um, my philosophy is um, I start simple. Did the patient get readmitted or not? <laughs> You know, know your readmission rates. Anybody that's readmitted within 48 hours, it's your fault. It's your fault. Shouldn't have sent them out. Something happened until proven otherwise. Okay? Um, it depends on the unit. I don't trust computer accounts very much. It's data, shit, data in, bad in, bad out. Um, I let my clerks do a lot of the data. Clerks are really great for collecting data. NPs are really great for collecting data. Um, use them. Um, service compensation enhancement. I, I think. We're going to get, oh my. Um, this is all about marketing, develop a belief that you're an indispensable service. And make it so. Okay, make yourself an indispensable. Become an asset, bond with nursing, must have sign off on all guidelines and policies. You know, no doctor was involved with sign off on policies and procedures that involve the ICU. Boy, that pissed me off. I still don't have sign off, but I got to tell you what I did do, and I'm going to jump ahead, is I formed this critical care operations committee. And the Critical Care Operations Committee is the greatest thing I think that can happen, and you should do it in your hospital. Because what it is, it's a group of all the multi, all the specialties, and nursing's there, and you talk about things, and you get policies and procedures with a lot of buy-in. But I guarantee if you go to most hospitals, you'll find that a lot of the things that are guiding your care, you had no say in in your ICU. So be very careful. Align hospital, you got to align the hospital and physician incentives. You know, they can be different sometimes. Very different. And you must be part of service line development. I get so ticked off. That all of a sudden, the heart people are saying, we're going to go out and proselytize, I don't know, transplant. Um, here's what we're going to say. Well, wait a minute. We take care of your transplant. Why aren't we part of the development of this procedure? You know? So I got to go knocking on the door and saying, listen, excuse me, but Lancaster State has a lot to do with what we do. Don't you think we should involve with the cost? Because they work out these budgets for these service lines, and all of a sudden they forgot. There's an ICU on the other side that spends the most money of anybody. So you've got to think about when you hear the service line coming up, you've got to think if it pertains to you, and then try to be nice, try to get your foot in the door a little bit, because it's really important, really important. You have to have fiscal understanding, you guys. Don't go in. If you don't, if you don't, talk, you don't know what you're talking about, then you're screwed. So you have to have, you've got to know what capital versus operational equipment is. 
all right? Capital is the big stuff, an MRI. Operational is the stuff like electricity, okay? Um, there's expenses, there's fixed and variable expenses. Guess which ones you have a lot of control over? Variables, the variables. The pharmacy, the imp so you gotta really think about, you know, how you're spending your money on your IC. We have this big thing going right now, we're doing great. We'll save about $50,000 in two weeks just on the number of labs we stopped doing. We're, gonna, we're on, a, on a roll to save probably three-quarters of a million dollars in lab savings, thanks to shock trauma not doing LFTs every six hours. Um, <laughs> but you have to know this stuff, and I, I'm going to go through this. Um, you have to learn how to control. Where do you control expenses? Consults, equipment purchases, equipment standardization, resource management. I mean, we could talk for hours. I could, each one of these slides could probably be a talk. Be involved in all aspects of pharmacy. Be involved with all aspects. Make the pharmacy your best friend. What do you do the most of? Drugs. Try to streamline your drugs. Understand from the pharmacy which drugs are expensive. Try to help them out to save money. The hospital will love you. We saved over a million and a half dollars in three years on nitric by substituting Flowland. Million and a half. I didn't get it back. You know, that's something you might want to think about. I get 10% of all. You know, I, the critical care service, once you build the service, you don't have a service, you can't put money anywhere, right? It goes somewhere else. Um, marketing critical care, improving revenue, I can talk about indispensable. Again, it's all this, um, I'm gonna move on. Um, critical care ops, I kind of talked about. Billing, you wanna know about billing real quick? Something that you really should know, I just do one thing. You gotta know how to bill. You gotta track your bills. No, you have every right to know how much you build. You have every right to know what the return on your billing is. That's really important. Trust me, you know, I bill out a couple million a year, literally. I only get 30%. I don't get it, but the hospital only gets 30% of that back. Okay? That's not a lot. So if you say, hey, I billed this much, why is my salary more? Remember, it's only 30% back, plus they're paying your, your malpractice and blah, 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 blah. So you really probably don't earn your keep, just so you know. I don't think I know an intensivist that actually earns their keep. So you have to do all those other things, which I told you about in the beginning. Um, 99291, I think you need to know. I just want to show you more. Uh, for 99, critical care codes and extended visit codes, not every person in ICU is critically ill. Please don't put a critical care bill on everybody. You will get called by your Medicare provider and probably get chastised and fined. Um, a patient who's ready to roll out of the ICU is not a critical care charge. Okay, is not. And the patient that's on a ventilator is not a critical care charge. Um, what we don't get paid for, by the way, we don't get paid for these things. The hospital doesn't get paid for it. So these are all the things you want to avoid. So if you're going to go in your ICU and you're going to try to make some changes and you're going to be endeared by the administration, cut down on all these things really quick. I think we really keep trying to do it, but it's tough. All, anything that happens to you in the hospital, just about you got to avoid. So this is a good critical care note. And I just wanted to say, because everybody like says, oh, God, the critical care note, it's so important. That's a critical care note. Post-op day, necrotizing, unbelievably ill. You actually wrote that. But no room to make progress and no signs of progress. So that gives you a sense of acuity, doesn't it? Remains obtunded, map low, acceptable, and norepinephrine epinephrine shows you your titrating drips. You've got you know, high dose high dose thinking, stable PO2, high 50 range and full support, on insulin drip. So he's going through every system and he's just giving, but he's showing the acuity. I mean, you read this thing and you know what, you're, they know what they're doing to the patient and you know how sick they are. So this is truly 
a good critical care note. Maybe it's hard to believe, but you don't have to write a whole bunch of stuff for critical. You don't have to do each system. And we make you do each system in this hospital because a lot of times the notes can be, have to be downgraded because what you're trying to make a person sick and they're not. And our, our, our coders, we've taught them to try to suss that out really quick. But that's a critical care note. Um, becoming a leader, critical care team, every team needs a coach. It's a very high performing team. You've got people that are really smart, really driven. If you don't have them, get rid of them. Um, utilize the bureaucracy fair. Have them perform consistently well. It's really hard to do. But you've got to bring the best out of everybody. You've got to find what they like. Take some time with your PT people. You know, sit down in the afternoon and talk to them, whether frustrations. Um, articulate expectations clearly and distinctly. You know, people pretty, know, pretty much know what I like and what I don't like in my ICU. Um, and, you know, there's a consequence if you're not doing it right. Um, but I examine that before I scream, I promise. Most, must know when there's deviations. You cannot be blindsided. There's nothing worse than the intensivist being blindsided. You know, you've got to know what's going on, especially if you're working on a surgical ICU. If something goes on with my patient, Jim Gammy comes in next morning, what the hell's going on? I'm like, it makes me look like an idiot. I'm not running my ICU. So you can't be blindsided. You have to have people trust you that they can bring that whole transactional thing. You have to have them being able to come to you and tell you when they screw up or tell you that, hey, I didn't, you know. And they know you're not going to sit there and try to figure it and answer their question right away. You're going to go take it back, think about it, and address it in a quiet, peaceful way. And when Jim Gammy comes back the next time, he might be a nice guy. He usually is now. Must hold people accountable for their actions. One moment leader, the next point, you're a pure practitioner. That's really tough. One moment you're sitting there and you're part of the team, next moment you have to be the boss. You've got to sort those things out in your head, but just be aware of them. Um, we're all here for the patient. If there's nothing else you can do, do it right for the patient. It'll work out in the end. It'll absolutely work out in the end. That's it. Sorry. Took so long. <laughs>